my name is Andrea, and I'm going to tell you a story. For those who know me well, I'm not quiet very often, but earlier this year, I was stunned into silence. I tried to remain strong, but as tears streamed down my face, I heard what I never could have imagined. I'm sorry, honey, but it doesn't look good. You'll still need a biopsy for confirmation, but I'm pretty confident you have stage two breast cancer. I discovered a lump in my breast on March 1st of this year, and three weeks later was diagnosed with triple positive stage two invasive ductal carcinoma at the age of 29. My world came to an abrupt halt in a matter of moments, and no one knew. I didn't want to worry anyone till I knew for sure, so I had only told one person. Once I was scheduled for a biopsy, I knew it was time to start telling my family and friends so they could begin to pray and mentally prepare. I have a unique story because I was basically diagnosed by my radiologist first. This, however, gave me time to let it sink in a little before it was confirmed by the breast surgeon after a biopsy the next week. Stunned, surreal, and out-of-body experience are just a few ways of putting it. Some of my first thoughts were, I don't have time for this. I'm a thousand miles away from family and longtime friends. How could this happen? I have no family history. How will people react? I'm too young and I have a life to live. I'm supposed to be doing these things. I have just started a new job. I'm going to lose my beautiful hair. I'm thankful I have insurance, but how will I pay for this? Now I'll get married even later in life and be an even older mom because this will delay that. And oh great, now all my weaknesses will be on display. Well, hello friends, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. So that was a little distracting, huh? I want you to know we intentionally chose the way we were going to introduce Andrea uh, in that particular manner. We intentionally set it up to be just a little bit jarring. We're used to Jason singing and praying and then going right into the smooth transition into opening Bibles. But what we wanted to do is have Andrea get up and just go into a story where she starts off, I have breast cancer. And we wanted it to be a little bit jarring for this reason, because we wanted everyone in the room to be able to palpably recall what it's like when you have one of those jarring, disorienting moments in life, right? Think about this. When's the last time you had kind of a disorienting moment? Maybe for you, this was something that was really big, right? I know in my life, we've certainly had a number of those moments. Uh, I can think about when we were pregnant with our daughter, Grace, uh, really early on in the pregnancy, we thought we miscarried. And I'm, let me just tell you, if you've ever had one of those moments, and I, I pray that no one in this room has to experience it, but if you've ever had one of those, that just the, the, the emotions, knock you, they knocked me to the floor. I, just, I, I couldn't think about that. I couldn't process. I'm asking all these questions. I don't know what to do, right? It, it may be something big like that, the last time you had a disorienting moment, or maybe it was a kind of a rather minor moment, Right? Um, I had one of these recently. Uh, in fact, last night, uh, I was putting kids to sleep. Uh, Natalie's like, hey, I'm going to go out for a little bit and just kind of unwind. I was like, okay, cool. So she opens the garage, and when the light comes into the garage, she looks up, and our ceiling is being flooded with water, and it's dripping down. And I look up, and I'm like, uh, 
explode. This is literally what I did for like a minute as I'm just stunned, right? I don't know what to do. And I finally realized our air conditioner had kind of backed up a little bit and the sensor didn't go off and there was leakage. So I had to go and clean that up and it was really nasty. But hey, for a moment there, it was just one of those minor things in comparison to life. I'm looking up at the ceiling going, I, I, I don't know what to do, right? We've all had those moments in life. And chances are, if you're a human being who's here today, and I think that covers most of us in the room, right? If you're a human being, you are probably going to experience a moment in life where you are stunned. You are disoriented. You don't know what to do. You're trying to process. He just said what to me about, what? She, she just, what, 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 what happened? To that? What, uh, what, what? You, you have no words. You don't know what to do. What do we do in those moments? How do we move forward in those moments? How do we even begin to get reoriented in those moments? Well, the Apostle Paul is addressing this very issue in the latter half of Ephesians chapter 3. And I want us to jump into that to see how he prays for us that we would be reoriented in some of these moments in life. But before we jump into the text, I want to invite you to pray with me one more time, and then we'll jump into God's word. God, I pray that here in this evening that you would help us to understand what it looks like to find some sense of orientation and certainty in the midst of those moments in life that are chaotic and out of our control. And I pray that you would make us teachable before the writings of the Apostle Paul here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, if you have it on your phone or in your Bibles. Starting verse 14. Now, remember, let me just say this. Remember, this is the summary of the book of Ephesians. We are saved by grace to walk this way. First three chapters, saved by grace. So Paul is finishing up this whole uh, series of chapters on what it means to be saved by grace. He's finishing up the theology portion. He hasn't quite moved into the practical application yet. So he is praying to wrap up this, this long stretch of theological teaching that's going on here. And it's very important to keep that in mind, especially when he starts to talk about something really uh, practical in particular at the back end, and that is namely what prayer looks like. Just keep that in mind. But let's read together here in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Here's what Paul writes, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses, all, uh, surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friends, as I look over this section of text here, it kind of breaks apart for me in about three big sections. And so there's three observations I want to make just to help us get grounded in what the truth of God's word says. And once we look at those three things, I'm then going to make some application on the back end. I think it flows quite nicely out of this. So three things I want us to notice. Number one, I want you to notice where we are to be oriented, where we are to be oriented. Paul says and prays, verse 16, 
that we be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. For Paul, the thing we need to work on most in our life is our inner being, the invisible quality of the human being. That is our character, our moral formation, our spirit. For Paul, these are often synonymous terms. Paul's saying this, my prayer for you, given everything I could pray for right now, is that you guys would learn the table Orlando, that you guys, young adults in Orlando, would learn the value of of focusing the disproportionate amount of your energies working on the formation of your inner character, your inner man, your inner woman, the, in, the inner portion of who you are uh, as a human being. That's what he's praying for. Paul doesn't waste a lot of time with behavior modification. And this is really important that we understand this up front. For Paul, behavior modification is not something you should spend much time in. Instead, you should focus the vast majority of your energies and your efforts on the inside. Why is this so significant for us today? Well, because in the 21st century, in the West, in Orlando, most of what we see in culture around us says focus only on the external. Don't worry about the internal. Focus only on the external. Art, politics, um, uh, anything we can think of in, in broader culture, uh, whether the art's music or film or you know, Netflix or kind of whatever, whether you're looking at kind of the political leanings and things like that, says focus really on your external. Focus on the external things. Don't deal with the internal, psychological. Don't deal with the uh, metaphysical. Don't deal with the internal, invisible things. Focus only on the external. And, and what's interesting is this is reflected actually in uh, art uh, in a practical way. I, I think there's an, an argument to be made that if you looked at Nielsen ratings and things like that, you might see that, the, that what art tells us actually is that although we spend a disproportionate amount of our money investing in uh, television content and film content that focuses on the external, it's actually the, the film and the content that focuses on the internal that gets more and more eyeballs. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this, right? So you can look, the most profitable thing in all of television and all of streaming, Netflix, services, all that stuff is um, reality content, right? And I'm sure you guys have watched your fair share of reality content. We don't need, this is not confession time. I'm not asking for anybody to get up and just be like, I love the Kardashians. Look, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I love Jesus. I love the Kardashians. That's okay. We can talk about that later. But here's the thing. Um, there's lots of reality TV shows that focus on the external, beauty makeovers and uh, the development of your personality, becoming the kind of person that other people want to be around, like that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and you can see all these kind of vapid TV shows that are all about like these external makeovers and external relationships and external things. And if you look at the demographics of those shows, primarily the people who watch those shows are teenagers. In particular, they're middle schoolers. That's who watches the TV shows. And this is what it tells us uh, as people who look at sociological numbers. It means that the people who like those shows are very immature relative to the rest of the people who watch possible TV shows, right? Immature people like to focus on external things. But the thing that, that, that actually, the, the kinds of shows that, that gather the most diverse set of eyeballs, it doesn't matter what your age range is, what your kind of uh, cultural or ethnic background is, the thing that gets the most eyeballs on TV are actually home fixer-upper shows, right? Uh, home remodeling shows. So fixer-upper, for example, I'm from Waco, Texas, right? We've got fixer-upper, a couple from Waco, Texas, Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? That, that show uh, is emblematic of these uh, reality TV shows where they get a lot of things, um, where they get a, a, lot, a huge demographic that watches their show. And here's the reason why, I think. Because what happens in Fixer Upper that is fundamentally different than some of these other reality TV shows 
is that this couple takes a house and they say, we really think that house could become something better. And then the first thing they do is they demo that house down to its bare core inner essentials and they rebuild it from the inside out, which is why everybody who comes home when they do the big reveal, they're like, oh my goodness, I never thought my house could look like this. And Chip and Joe are always so nice. They're like, yeah, you know, it's really amazing. I mean, we just, we had a few hours and thought we would fix this up. They're like super casual about how they completely remodeled this one house. They're like, yeah, oh my, you know, when I gave this guys, you know, when we gave this to you, it was a trailer park and now it's like a huge mansion. How'd you guys do that? They're like, well, you know, it was really not that hard, right? You know, the big reveal. And so people walk in and if you watch them walk around, they're like, oh my goodness, I never knew this room could look like this. Oh my goodness, I never knew this butler's pantry could be here. Oh my goodness, I never knew that that thing would go good in my bathroom. I just never knew any of these things, right? They're just so amazed. And sometimes these people with tears in their eyes, they'll look at Chip and Joe and they're like, I can't believe this is my house. It looks completely different, right? Well, why does it look completely different? because it's completely different, because they gutted the house down to its core and they rebuilt it from the inside out. And this is what Paul is saying. Hey, when you're in these situations, there's chaos all around you. What you need in those moments is not more newer, different behavior and a different personality. You don't suddenly need to become an extrovert. You don't need to work as a focus on all those external things. What you need in those moments, the thing that's gonna help you get oriented in the middle of chaos is character development. So his prayer for us is that right now, what we would begin to disproportionately focus on is our inner life. And we'll talk a little practically about that in a little bit. Number two, I want you to notice not only where we should be oriented, but what we are oriented towards. What we are oriented towards. Paul writes that, he, that we would be oriented towards understanding, verse 19, we may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does it mean, the fullness of God? The fullness of God is basically um, the idea that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, we'd be filled more of Jesus. This idea of filling, it's spiritual maturity, it's maturity in our inner being, it's a, it's a wise and sober approach um, to thinking about God and his kingdom and the world and his purposes on the earth. And this is, not, um, this is not a place you just kind of land one day in life as if it happens overnight. It's really kind of the idea of a gradual ordering of your life consistently and sustainably around the things of God. You say, I'm making a decision. The intent of my life is to increasingly, the more I know, to increasingly order my life around God. I don't have it all put together perfectly today, but by God's grace, tomorrow I'll have it a little more ordered around him. And the week after that, it'll be a little more ordered. And two years later, it'll be a little more ordered. And maybe one time when I'm old and gray and crusty, I'll be really ordered around God, right? But the idea of fullness is that you're on this you're on this approach to consistently and sustainably orienting and ordering rather your entire life around the things of God. And here's a good example. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. And this is the best thing that came to me. Uh, you know, you all have those one friends who get really obsessed with a particular thing, right? Like they get obsessed with, for example, like a TV show. They, they watch The Office for Netflix, uh, on Netflix for the first time. And they're like, hey, do you guys know about the show called The Office? And you're like, yes. It's been around for like 15 years. Like, oh, it's so great, right? Or you have that one friend who really likes Harry Potter a lot, right? They read the first book and like, man, I'm really captivated by this thing called Harry Potter. It's amazing, right? Um, Or maybe they get into like CrossFit, 
right? We all have those friends <coughs> who get into CrossFit and they're like, oh, I really love this thing called CrossFit. Or maybe they uh, decide to go vegan, right? Because everyone who goes vegan has to let you know that they're vegan, right? <laughs> like they're not even really vegan, but it's, there's the social pressure. It's like, you know, you go to a restaurant, you're like, hey, I'm vegan, do you have vegan options? And the guy's like, we're at McDonald's, calm down, right? Um, <coughs> well, I was thinking about this. I had some friends in high school named Colt and Micah. Now, I went to high school in deep East Texas. If you don't know anything about East Texas, it's basically like Kissimmee, but I would say this, like if you guys have ever been to Kissimmee or St. Cloud or kind of that area, it's like pickup trucks and camo and kind of a lot of that stuff, right? In fact, I think people in East Texas would look at people in Kissimmee and St. Cloud and go, like, you guys are too urban, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I'm in this kind of context here, and my friend's, you know, Colt, his name's Colt, right? So you just know that's a Texan name, and then my friend Micah, and they were just real, like, I don't know, you have those friends, they just get into stuff, right? Well, the phase that they got into towards our senior year, was year 2000. It's my senior year of high school, I know I'm old. Um, they really got into tennis, okay? And this was strange for a number of reasons, because I remember the first conversation. I'm sitting down with them at church, and they're like, bro, have you ever gotten into tennis? And I was like, no, I live in East Texas. There's just like the likelihood of getting into tennis and being from East Texas. Those are Venn diagrams that don't cross, right? That just doesn't happen. And he's like, oh man, tennis is really cool. We've been going to the public park in our town and we've just been playing tennis. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, that was like week one. Like week two came back and they were like, man, you hear that mess about Roland Garros? They play, they play tennis on clay, isn't that crazy? And I was like, you guys are really getting into tennis. They're like, oh, we love tennis, we're obsessed with it. And you're like, okay. Well, like a month later, they're showing up and they're wearing like all Nike tennis gear, which is basically like really short shorts, but then like the European zip up windbreaker thing going on and then the dad hat, right? You know what I'm talking about? The mesh dad hat that's white. It's like bleach white. And then they have the white tennis socks up and then the weird Steph Curry dad shoes on, right? That's what they show up in. They're like showing up to church like that. I'm like, what are you guys wearing? Or they got into like a, Bor um, a Borg and McEnroe situation, so they were only wearing sweatbands, and like the sweatbands are on. And you're like, guys, what are you wearing? Pretty soon they show up, and Micah's driving a Land Rover. He's like, it's the next inevitable step. If you're getting into tennis, you got to drive a Land Rover, right? And they're like planning their whole vacations around like which major tennis tournament was where. And, and I just, I kept looking at them, like, guys, y'all are from East Texas. Like, you were the only two people in like a 200-mile radius that watched tennis, right? You, it, it was just, it, it was bananas. Well, they really got into tennis. They started like, you know, creating tennis profiles, and they'd be like, hey, which tennis player does your life most represent, right? Uh, and this whole thing was going on there. It was very obscure. But ultimately, in their life, they gradually became more and more fans of tennis. They didn't start out that way. They were just two guys on a community court municipal park playing tennis. Two years later, you know, they're driving Land Rovers and they're, you know, becoming dentists and they're just trying to figure out a way to make a lot of money so they can spend on their tennis hobby habit. But this is the idea that happens here. Again, whether it's CrossFit or Harry Potter or The Office, you know, you start off watching it and you like it and then pretty soon you're taking BuzzFeed quizzes on which house you're a part of, Gryffindor, right? And, uh, and then you, you guys are kind of doing your thing, right? This is what Paul's talking about. His, his prayer for us is that we would become people who gradually orient more and more, order more and more of our lives around who God is. We may not be perfect today, but by God's grace, tomorrow and two weeks from now and a year from now, our life is sustainably organized around the things of God. So we notice where 
we are oriented, what we are oriented towards, and finally, how we are oriented. <clears throat> we are oriented, Paul says, in this idea of prayer. How are we oriented? We get oriented uh, by praying. So when you find yourself in this situation where it's, uh, it's disorienting and you don't know what to do, what Paul is saying is, that's the moment, the way to get yourself oriented is by praying. And Paul concludes by not only praying for us, but teaching, teaching us a lot about what prayer is. So I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on this idea of what orienting prayer looks like when you're in a disorienting situation. And here's my promise. Everybody in this room, everyone who's here, can find themselves getting oriented uh, in a disoriented time by praying with these three truths in mind. Everybody in this room can get oriented in a disorienting time by keeping these three truths in mind when you're praying, okay? And here's the first one. Here's the first one. Remember that the burden for us is not to ask the right things. Paul says this when he prays for us. Now, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I memorized it like this, that God is able to exceedingly abundantly do more than we ask or imagine. That term for thinking there is imagine. We'll talk about it in a second. But God's able to do far more than we ask or think according to the power that's at work within us. This is Paul's conception of prayer. So first thing we got to understand is the burden for us when we're disoriented is not to ask for the right things, okay? And there's a reason for this. The reason Paul, I think, mentions this is because, remember, he's got Ephesians 2 in mind. Remember Ephesians 2? is by grace we are, we've been saved. It's a gift from God, not by ourselves, not by works so that no one can boast. Remember, out of that, we understood that the clearest, uh, the, the, the clear teaching of the gospel is this. We don't, as believers, work towards the cross. We don't expend our energies working towards the cross, hoping God will save us. As believers, we understand God saved us. He's the, if you remember you were here, he's the foundation we stand upon. We do all of our spending of energies and working from the cross. We don't work towards the cross. We work from the cross. So when we think about praying, we are not praying towards the cross. We are not asking towards the cross because asking doesn't do anything for us, right? Um, I, I, Paul is saying this, I think, for this reason. Because for many of us, when we think about praying, we get really bogged down in whether we're asking the right sequence of words. You guys ever experienced that in your prayer lives as you start thinking about praying? You get down on your knees at night and you're like, okay, mm, how did that Lord's Prayer go? Okay, let me think about this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom. Ooh, is it kingdom come or go? I can't remember. Like, I feel like it's a direction of some way, shape, or form. Ooh, I got to get this right. Okay, just give me a second, Jesus. Let me think about this, right? And you're just like so bogged down, like, oh, is this the right thing? Are these the right words? Do I have the right position? Is it both knees? Is it one knee? Do I look up? Do I look down? I don't know. Like, I've seen my Catholic friends look up, but then, or maybe it's my charismatic friends. Oh no, I don't know which friends they are, right? And you're just so in your own head. Again, you're disoriented. Um, I remember when I was in sixth grade, first day of sixth grade, my cousins were tragically killed in this car wreck. First day of sixth grade. And I wasn't even a Christian. My family wasn't a Christian family, but I had gone to this confirmation class because my mom wanted me to learn morals. And um, I remember 
I remember learning and learning to recite the Lord's Prayer. And so I'm not a Christian, but I'm really scared, and I don't understand death. And I remember lying in my bed in the dark, looking up at the ceiling, not even, not looking towards God, just I can't sleep. And I'm saying the Lord's Prayer over and over and over and over again until I go to sleep. And I can remember that my only hope at that moment as a sixth grader is thinking, if there's anything that's out there, I'm hoping these magic words will affect something, right? I don't know what I need. I don't know how I need, but I'm just going to say these magic words almost like a spell. Maybe something will happen here. And I would wake up the next day and nothing happened. I was like, okay, well, maybe it's a different prayer. So then I go to my Catholic friends and I'm like, hey, you guys got any prayers? And they're like, oh, the only one I know is the mealtime prayer. You guys know what that is? Bless us, O Lord, for these are our gifts which we have received through Christ's bounty, something, 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 right? Uh, I didn't grow up Catholic, right? But I at least got that part. And I was like, okay, bless us, O Lord, for these are our gifts which we receive through Christ's bounty, something, amen. Like, okay, right? And so I just, I would say that over and over again. And I, I think the way a lot of us, if we're honest, when we go to pray, we're really, really overtly worried about the right sequence of prayers. Again, we're, we're getting down on our knees and we're like, okay, okay, our Father, heart in heaven, how I be here. Oh, man, is it name or fame? They both rhyme. Ooh. If I Google right now, can God see it? Oh, man. Right? And we're worried, and here's what we're worried about. We're worried that somehow God is up in heaven, like with all these blessings right here, and they're starting to get rained down, and he's like, not yet. Let's wait to see if he figures out this name, fame thing. Just hold it up right there. Okay, he's Google searching. Okay, less blessings. Get those ready, okay? Okay, he said fame. Sorry, not tonight, right? Like that's what we think God's somehow doing. But again, remember, we are not saved by our works. We don't work towards the cross. We don't pray towards the cross. God's not looking at us hoping we get the right words like some kind of supernatural lock so that we can open up all these blessings and give to us. That's not how God operates. We work from the cross. We pray from the cross. And so what we can have in confidence, Paul's telling us, is remember, uh, it's not about our asking. Our burden is not to ask the right things. Asking has a role, but that's not our burden. The second thing I want you to note uh, is that the burden is not to think the right things. It's not to think or to imagine the right things. Um, I, I was uh, reading a book by a, a Christian author, and he, he was kind of talking about this. He was actually quoting this verse here. Uh, and he basically says, and this guy's a really good guy. I mean him no harm. I don't begrudge him at all. But he basically kind of suggests that the way to unlock the prayer life, and he uses this term, the way to unlock your prayer life, which already was like, oh, I don't know about that. But he basically says is you've got to begin to have a holy imagination with God, right? You've got to dream about all that God could possibly do. And then once you do that, you're going to find yourself in this kind of world where God will unlock these things and they'll start to happen in your life. And I remember reading uh, stuff like this when I was an early Christian, and I would spend, again, hours in my room just trying to imagine with God all the blessings that he had. It's like, okay, if I can just imagine it, okay, that's the right perspective. If I can just do that, then maybe I'll see my circumstances change and the outcomes change, right? And here's what Paul's saying. Hey, in the same way you don't ask towards the cross— you don't imagine or think towards the cross. You, you ask and imagine from the cross. So our burden is not to imagine the right things, right? And there's a very clear reason for why asking and imagining is not a condition for God to bless us in prayer. 
Because Paul tells us, here's what our burden is. Our burden is to pray to the right thing. It's not to ask the right thing. It's not to think the right thing. Our burden is to to pray to the right thing. In other words, it's to pray to the sovereign God of the universe. And here's what you got to keep in mind. God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And that word more there doesn't mean in addition to. That word more there means beyond. So God doesn't do in addition to what we can ask and imagine as if like God's over there and I'm right here and I'm like, you know what, God, I'll start walking your way and you start walking mine and we'll meet in the middle right here. And so I'm going to ask and imagine some things and God's going to be over here and he's like, not yet. Take a few more steps. Oh, I like that. You said in his name. Good. That was the right sequence. Oh, you're imagining? Cool. Oh, I've got a little more blessings. Oh, you're asking and thinking correctly. Let me just come over here and meet you. And you did all of this work. Now I'm going to fill up all the rest with all of these blessings. That's not how God works. God says, I'm able to do beyond what you can ask or imagine. And in fact, you could not ask correctly and not imagine correctly. I'm still going to bless you because I'm God. That's how I roll. God does beyond all we can ask or imagine. It's almost if he's looking at us like, bro, you said Jesus. That was it, right? You spoke in my direction. That's all you had to do. I was sitting here coming to bless you anyway. And you're like, Jesus, you're like, hey, here you go, right? And you're coming down. I, I was trying to think about the best way to think about praying here. And I'm reminded of this story that a pastor named Mark Driscoll used to tell. Mark Driscoll's from Seattle, and his grandfather worked in construction. And someone asked him one time, Mark, tell us about prayer. And he said, prayer kind of operates this way. He said, one day, uh, there was a bring your grandkid to work day at the construction site. And so my grandfather, who, you know, built houses and like hammered stuff, he got me a plastic uh, construction hat and a plastic lunch pail and a plastic hammer And he went by and he picked me up in his old pickup truck and sat me down, you know, put the little safety seat on and lock and all that stuff. And he had his lunch pail and his hard hat and his hammer. And we got in the car and we drove to the work site. And he would get to where he was framing a wall and he would like hammer a nail all the way in. And I would come over and he'd pick me up and I would hit it with my plastic hammer and it wouldn't do anything, but I got to participate with him in the the process and he would finish that off. And after a a season or after a couple hours of doing some work, we would sit down and everybody opened their lunch pail and I opened my lunch pail and we all ate together and it was like, hey, this is really fun. And then we went in the afternoon, we did a few, you know, a little more work and, you know, he let me help him out with everything he did. I picked up stuff, I carried it, I moved it, I used my little hammer, it was really great. And then he asks this question. At At the end of the day, What work did I accomplish? None. He did all the work. But that's not the point. That's not the right question to ask. The right question to ask is, why did he involve me in his work? And the answer is, because he had enjoyment for bringing me into his presence and letting me get to see what he's doing. And that's prayer. God is able to do far more than we ask and far more than we think, but still he invites us in to see and to participate in the work he's doing. And the way that we participate in that is by seeking him. The only thing we have to do in our disoriented moments to orient ourselves is to call out the name Jesus, because the burden on us is not to ask, and the burden on us is not to think or imagine, the burden on us is to say the name of Jesus towards him in his direction. 
And because God is everywhere, you can say it any direction, and he's like, yep, I'm right there. Our burden in prayer is simply to take the desires of our hearts and to throw that up towards Jesus. And here's the confidence that we have. What Jesus wants to do, he's going to do in many senses, regardless of whether we ask correctly or posture correctly, because Jesus has a plan that supersedes our plan, and he's going to do what he's going to do. All he invites us to do is to join him in that process. To conclude, I want to have Andrea come up with some of her friends and tell the rest of her story. And I want you to listen for the keys of prayer in this story here. So would you guys join me in welcoming Andrea and her crew back up to the stage? In the midst of everything, I have had this indescribable peace. Once I let out the initial grief, my mind started racing of what the next steps may look like. I'm a bit of a planner. These guys know that more than anyone. I thought how many people loved me and would support me, how great my community was here in Florida, and how I was about to kick some cancer butt because it chose the wrong girl. I began preparing for battle, and my catchphrase quickly became rise up swinging because I had decided that going down swinging wasn't an option. The treatment process has been nothing like I expected. Besides peace, my body has remained strong for the most part, and my finances have been taken care of by amazing donations from people who barely know me or don't know me at all. I have amazing doctors and nurses who have had a positive outlook and prognosis since the beginning. I've continued working full-time and only missed a handful of days. Friends and family have traveled to sit beside me, and I've received prayers and encouragement from all over the world. The Lord has been present and has blessed me in what could be darkness, but has instead been his light. The two major themes throughout have been never-ending joy and community. The Lord has been with me since before I was diagnosed, so I have no reason not to trust him now. It's been so cool to see how he has orchestrated my life up until now and how he has been ever-present the whole time. There are so many examples of the Lord preparing me, for, preparing me for this journey as well as blessing me in it. I worked at a hospital for seven years and partially went through nursing school, which prepared me for much of the medical process. In reflection of that time, I was able to put into perspective those who are even less fortunate with their health than myself. I didn't have insurance for 10 years, but I've had it for the last two. I didn't even think to pray. Oh, sorry. I've only lived here three years, but I'm in deep and meaningful community founded in Christ. And bonus, a prayer I didn't even think to pray was answered. My last bad chemo treatment was canceled due to my numbers being too low, and my oncologist decided that five treatments was sufficient. All of those moments explain my joy and the blessing that is community. I experience the Lord provides strength and resources as well as joy. He has developed the best community around me who stepped up and acted like family because they are. They have cried with me, laughed with me, sat with me during treatments, <laughs> watched movies when I had to stay away from crowds and rest, delivered groceries, and fervently prayed with me and for me. I can't stress enough how important community is as a believer. In Galatians 6.2, it says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. We have done that for each other many times over, and the Lord has blessed us through it. 
I love the part in Ephesians 3.19 where it says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God because it explains the last six months of my life. I may not fully understand it, but I have been full of joy, strength, peace, and determination of which I give all glory to him. I could never do that on my own and I praise him for loving me and working through me. I am thankful to have the chance to share with others what he's done for me in hopes that it encourages someone else. I believe he has brought me through this journey for this very reason and is calling me to keep sharing. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, uh, by the way, good job by you. That was really good. You got through it. Only a few tears? Just a couple. Okay. Hey, I really love that line that Andrea had in there. Um, And you can remind me of what it... I didn't even think to pray for that, and God still moved. Guys, that's prayer. And listen, I know that oftentimes we pray, and then God sometimes will answer something, and then we walk away from that. We think, oh, it must be contingent upon the words that I use. And I know it seems that way because of the sequence. But remember the words of Paul. God is able to to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine, beyond what we can ask or imagine. Why? Because we're not saved by works. We are saved by grace. God initiates and invites us to participate and cooperate with him in all things in the Christian life, especially in prayer. Andrea, thanks for coming and sharing your story with me. Can, we, can you give Andrea and her friends just a round of applause? Thank you guys so much. Thank you, friends. You guys are awesome. Hey, here's how I want us to respond. Uh, We're going to try something a little bit mystical here, something a little bit different. Normally, we have a prayer team that comes down front. You can stand and go pray with them. We're going to do something a little bit different. If you want to pray with someone about something specific, after we hug and pray and are dismissed, a few of our uh, team in black shirts are going to stick around. I'll stick around. You're welcome to come pray with us. But what I want us to do right now is to just take one minute uh, silently while Jason plays and to practice what Paul has just taught us, to just practice. So I just want you to think about something in your mind that you're like, hey, I think I should probably pray about this. And I want you over the next minute to practice just trying to say the name of Jesus, to forget about the order of your words, to forget about trying to have the right theology in the way you phrase it, and to just be honest before Jesus, directing all of your prayers towards him. Take a minute and then I'll lead us in a response.